to uh, Shot Reverse Shot and our second of ten uh, artist profiles. Uh, I'm Matt Risby, hello, and uh, joining me as always is Ed Davis. How are you going, sir? All right? Yeah, doing very, very well. Uh, I am currently watching the Independent Spirit Awards, but muted so that we can uh, record this episode. So I'm just imagining what people are saying about Citizen Four right now. Right, okay. Well, you can keep us posted with kind of winners. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and it will be kind of grossly out of date by the time. Well, the Oscars would have happened by by the time this this goes out. Yeah, I think because uh, this will probably go up on Sunday morning. People should try and sync them up, uh, Pink Floyd and Wizard of Oz style, and see if there's mm. any kind of synchronicity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we get into it, uh, into the kind of the business of the week, uh, what have you been doing with yourself? Have you seen anything good this week? Yes, uh, most of this most of this week I've spent watching the uh, French documentary series the staircase um what is the staircase the staircase is uh like the early 2000s serial um it's okay. basically a a documentary series about a real life murder case in which the documentary crew was essentially embedded with the defense team representing a man named michael peterson not to be confused with charles bronson not to be confused with the other charles bronson um mm who uh, is accused of murdering his wife after she falls down some stairs and her and uh, the it's about the the details of the investigation and the trial it's uh, eight episodes long initially and then they did two follow-up episodes a few years ago and it's uh, it's very engrossing and uh, intriguing in the way that it indicts uh, the media and how that they kind of uh, come to dominate the trial mm, interesting um, I do like staircases um, especially ones that are involved in murder cases. It's uh, a, is it a spiral staircase? Uh, no, it's a kind of regular uh, kind of like Sheffield terraced house staircase, just straight down. They're pretty steep, those. Yeah, so yeah. so it, that's the ambiguity, really. It could be steep staircases or it could be murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's directed by the same guy that directed the documentary Murder on a Sunday Morning, which I think we've talked about in the past. Hey, I love that film. That's amazing. Yeah, I didn't know that. This is like those guys really have got a niche, haven't they? They just kind of just <laughs> hang around, just bent like kind of profiteering off murder. Yeah, they're vultures, but they're talented vultures. Um, yeah, the whole series is up in YouTube on YouTube. So if anyone wants to watch it, then it's there to be watched. Wow, there you go. Um, I've I've kind of not watched anything quite as good as that um, uh, this week. Uh, although I did finally catch up with the film Super, which I've been wanting to watch for a long time hmm. um, and um, now I can't get the image of uh, Rain Wilson kind of gleefully dropping breeze blocks onto people's heads uh, out, out of my kind of like uh, everyday periphery it's, uh, it's just always there hmm. that's, a, that's a film I really really liked at the time and like even more in retrospect because I can imagine like Disney executives watching it and thinking let's give this guy a Marvel franchise to direct <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Especially like they're like, well, hang on, let's take that really likable star from Juno and have her rape Dwight from the office. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, can we get this guy a talking raccoon in a tree, please? Because I think they're on to a winner. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. Oh, and we were kind of semi related note, I've been like listening to the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack on repeat because <laughs> um, it still has not got old for me yet. Um, but yeah, anyway. 
back to what we're talking about this week. Uh, we're talking about uh, Clint Eastwood. Uh, he's our our kind of focus uh, for the kind of artist profile this week. A fascinating guy uh, with a very very long career, um, and yeah, kind of lots to talk about. But yeah, as I say, we divide. Uh, this episode up into little sections we're going to talk about uh, what is considered his breakthrough uh, or his debut um, like he was a kind of a TV actor for a long time and in, in a TV show called Rawhide was his kind of uh, his, his bread and butter for many years um, but then he kind of took a trip uh, to Europe and uh, made a little thing called the Dollars Trilogy <laughs> It's nice, you laughing. See, my mule don't like people laughing. It's the crazy idea you're laughing at him. Now, if you apologize like I know you're going to, I might convince him that you really didn't mean it. Yeah, like like you say, he had kind of made his bones as a kind of a B-movie actor, not even a particularly well-known B-movie actor. He essentially appeared in bit parts and sometimes uncredited, and then he got a job on Rawhide, which led him directly working with Sergio Leone, who needed a kind of laconic American to uh, form the centerpiece for the film for a, uh, a Fistful of Dollars, which became kind of his... Uh, kind of established him certainly in Europe, although it took a few years for him to kind of break through in America, because um, those films weren't hugely popular in America at the time, and and they were kind of more huge hits on the European continent. Mm. Uh, and it, in many ways, it uh, pretty much established his his uh, his his iconic nature and and the kind of figure, the kind of character type that he would embody for you know much of the next sort of twenty or thirty years of his career. Mm. For the for the uninitiated, um, we're talking about the kind of birth of the spaghetti western uh, here, um, aren't we? And if you don't know what that means, that kind of means well, it's kind of like is it racist? <laughs> kind of, it's a little <laughs> bit kind of uh, uh, on PC, but we'll go with it. Um, yeah, basically, kind of the, took the kind of uh, kind of a reaction to the classical western, I guess, uh, made by Italians mostly in Spain, um, and they kind of set them in in kind of Mexico, the kind of borderlands, uh, and they were just really grubby. Uh, westerns where people kind of looked like they'd been kind of sleeping in their clothes and you know like people probably did in those days and they were kind of uh, more stylized uh, a lot more violent mm. um slightly kind of more uh, more punch to them um and uh, yeah like i say uh, they they were a huge hit in 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 Europe uh, Clint Eastwood automatically was a kind of like a big star in kind of Italy Spain and everywhere else um but the film's kind of had a delayed uh, reaction in America. They were released. All three films were released in the space of about eighteen months, I think, in America, and uh, absolutely kind of like uh, torn apart. And released critics did not like them, which is odd now, considered they're um, considering they are kind of held up as exemplary um, examples of the form. Yeah, I think in a large part it's probably due to that thing we were talking about, how they are kind of a reaction to a very American form of of storytelling. And you get the sense that maybe people didn't like it because they saw people taking this genre that had very established tropes and ideas and were really kind of uh, messing with them in a very kind of uh, visceral and, and violent way. 
And it's a like you know the Western like kind of jazz is an American invention. Mm. So uh, do you think there was some kind of hostility because of that? The kind of the way the Europeans were coming in and just you know essentially reinventing it. And also probably because at the time the Western was on the wane. Uh, it had... <laughs> like John Wayne. Yeah. You made a joke <laughs> unintentionally. Yeah. Um, I'm never intentionally funny. Um, that's only partly true. Uh, the uh, yeah, like uh, the the westerner had, was kind of falling into disrepute. It, it was one of those things where mainly because of things like rawhide and gunsmoke, where the genre had moved from the cinema onto the television, and so it didn't really. It was kind of out of favour. So not only were uh, these European directors taking a form that people considered to be American, they were taking one that Americans didn't even really care about at that point. So I think there was mm. kind of a hostility on two levels. Mm. And it's I didn't realise uh, until kind of doing a bit of further reading about this. I mean, I knew that he was on Rawhide, and I've kind of seen a little bit of him kind of with his shit eating grin all the way through, making it like he didn't want to be there. <laughs> um, but I didn't realise how big, like how kind of big a TV star he was. It, like if you adjust his uh, his earnings per episode uh, by inflation, he was on kind of like like top six figures per episode. He was he was a huge star then. Yeah, it's sort of a cast of friends numbers. Mm. Um, yeah, I think also one of the things I didn't realise is just how many episodes of that show they met they made, because that was in the days when TV seasons weren't restricted to like a short to like a a, a cushy twenty a year. It'd sometimes be forty or fifty. Wow! So even though he was on it for only five years, they made something like two hundred episodes, which is a crazy and probably is why he wanted to break out of that grind to uh, go and make films in in Italy. Yeah, and I mean, like, kind of the 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 dollars trilogy is important. We're talking about it, like I say, he'd made kind of, you know, several films before then, had little parts and things. But you know, this really put him on the map because it established him not only as a movie star, um, but as an icon. Uh, people, uh, he's kind of indistinguishable from think, when people think about the western. They think of John Wayne, they think of Gary Cooper, they think of Clint Eastwood. It's 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 you know, he's kind of established now as part of the kind of cultural fabric. Yeah, his uh, to the extent that even you know uh, people who don't make westerns base sort of western influence characters on him. You know, if you look at something like Stephen King's The Gunslinger, who is a character is based very explicitly on the kind of characters that Eastwood played, or the uh, the Sainted Killers in the Preacher comics is clearly based on um, mm -hmm. based on uh, on on Eastwood. There's kind of a this kind of semiotic thing where if you want to call up the image of a western you just instantly think of uh, him as you know as joe or goldie or all the various names that he uh, had to play the characters in uh, in the the dollars trilogy um and then kind of after that he i mean like i say he was kind of the films weren't particularly well liked in 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 america but he was a big star abroad but like he then made in uh, 1971 i think he made uh, Dirty harry which is essentially uh a western, but kind of set on the urban streets of, of San Francisco, uh, kind of uh, slightly less lawless, but he's kind of uh, very much the sheriff in town, kind of acting, kind of uh, uh, slightly kind of off the radar. He's a maverick. He's not afraid to kind of like bend the rules and shoot someone in the leg and stand on it. Um, uh, and that seemed to be a lot more palatable to, to American audiences. Yeah, definitely. You can definitely see there the importance that the Dollars trilogy had in establishing him as a actor because 
you can see in the in the character of Dirty Harry, he has a lot of the same sort of qualities as the mm-hmm. characters he'd played for Leone. He's a kind of laconic, kind of very wryly funny, has a very uh, old school sense of justice. You get the sense that Dirty Harry is a character who's been dropped in from a uh, a, a different time period and who hasn't really adjusted to sort of the social niceties of the seventies. Mm. And yeah, go on. But there's also a uh, kind of a an interesting thing with the contemporary relevance that. Dirty Harry is very uh, explicitly based on the Zodiac killings, as uh, mm-hmm. is is detailed in a little bit in uh, David Finch's film Zodiac. So not only is he kind of being dropped into kind of a modern world, there's this underlying sense that uh, you know they need someone who's kind of a rough, take no nonsense, maybe slightly uh, violent and fascistic cop to combat the sort of evil that people were were discovering in San Francisco at that time. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of tension in the character of Dirty Harry because Dirty Harry is awesome. He mm-hmm. kind of just wears a jumper and kind of waves waves a gun around and like you know does bad guys whilst he's uh, you know got half a hot dog in his mouth. He's like you know pretty cool, but like you say, he is kind of a fascist, mm. which is troubling. Yeah, I think he is definitely a kind of a fascistic character. I don't think the film itself necessarily is because that was something no. that it was a, it was uh, accused of i think it's just a an an opportunity to ex- to explore what that kind of fascism would look like if it was unleashed on the uh, on the streets of america mm. so i i've only seen uh, dirty harry for the first time today which is why i'm talking so lucidly about it like <laughs> no, normally with me i kind of ramble and kind of get details wrong probably talk about a different film entirely but today <laughs> it's fresh as a daisy um, but what I didn't realise from uh, watching Dirty Harry say for the very first time was that the oh there's like the whole like joke like most of the jokes from like Naked Gun are lifted straight from Dirty Harry. There's that bit where he's being bawled out by the by the kind of mayor and he's he's like, uh, well when I see like a, a bunch of kind of people in togas stabbing someone to death, I'll shoot the bastards. That's my policy. Uh, and they're, they turn out to be actors doing Julius Caesar. Um, but in <laughs> Dirty Harry, he's got that great line about, you know, when I see a guy chasing a woman down the street trying to rape her, uh, I shoot him. That's my policy. And then he's like, how do you know he's trying to shoot? And he was like, well, if you see a man chasing a woman and he's naked, carrying nothing but a knife and a hard on, then I presume he's not collecting for the Red Cross, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, a great bit of dialogue, uh, which he kind of delivers a lot better than I just did uh, through kind of very great teeth. Um but yeah, it's kind of interesting. Those, those the man with no name and Dirty Harry um, are kind of generally what people think of when they think of Clint Eastwood. Yeah, I think the uh, they're so kind of simple. Like not they're not uh, like poorly written or plainly written, but they are very uh, they're very easy to kind of boil down to a few key elements, and that's part of what makes them so iconic. Mm. Um, it helps, obviously, that um, Dirty Harry has at least a few really killer lines. Um, yeah. you know do you feel lucky punk obviously or you know in the later ones things like make my day you know mm. it, it's easy to, for people to kind of look at those things and really reduce him down to a single set of characteristics and although there's more nuance in the films themselves I think that simplicity is what allows them to be so kind of uh, emblematic of a certain kind of uh, American masculinity mm. and I think it's probably worth noting at this point that um I think I know we haven't kind of planned out all ten people we're going to talk about over the course of this year, but it's probably quite a safe bet to say that Clint Eastwood is probably the only movie star we're going to talk about. When I say a movie star, I mean not just someone who's a famous actor. This person is a movie star, as in like if you were, you know, if you are looking for people who represent Hollywood cinema, 
you know, Chaplin, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Marilyn Monroe, he is up there and he is he is one of those and that's kind of he is he kind of became that during the kind of late sixties, early seventies. Mm, I think that people tend to underrate him for that reason as an actor. Obviously he's a he's a he's a very, very talented and very good actor in a lot of his roles, but I think the the fact that he is such an iconic and kind of towering figure of the landscape. Um, also, I just remembered, you know, another example of people using that uh, imagery. You can think of something like Rango, where yeah. the mm. spirit of the West is Clint Eastwood. <laughs> mm. Yeah, voiced by Timothy Oliphant, I believe. Doing a very, very good impression, to the extent that I just assumed it was Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yeah. Taking on a very odd, funny voice role. But, you know, you do get the sense that, uh, yeah, he is just a... a kind of really really talented actor but because people think of him really in terms of those roles and I think he himself thinks of himself in those roles in terms of how he subverts that in some films like mm. you know the way that he subverts his tough guy uh, imagery in something like um, Every Which Way But Loose mm. um, you know he's, he's very aware of how he appears to people on screen and I think that that is, uh, that is why he is uh, such an interesting actor but also why people maybe underrate his abilities well, here's a question, kind of, because we're going to talk about him more as a director from this point on. Um, it, it, my my question to you is: is is he someone who's really been tested as an actor? Is he someone who's really displayed much of a range? Because it's it's very easy uh, to bracket his performances into kind of you know shades of tough guy. Um, yeah, I would say I'd say he's definitely pushed himself in terms of taking on very different roles in different films, like he's played romantic leads in addition to all of the, the action, action things, he's played comedic leads. Uh, he has definitely tried different things, but he's, he, like again, someone like John Wayne, he's someone who kind of has a set kind of uh, style that suits him and a set range that he kind of finds subtleties within, rather mm-hmm. than being someone like you know um like a, a philip seymour hoffman who you know you think of as an actor who could try many different things and kind of really bring something of himself to everything in in his case in clint eastwood's case i think he's an actor who kind of takes a role and then kind of bends it to his abilities rather than going outside of himself mm-hmm. there's always that joke about john wayne isn't there like he's got two two characters on a horse and off <laughs> 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 Which is got yeah. I mean, he, he has turned in some good performances, uh, the Duke. But uh, I can kind of see see where they're getting from. Um, there's also that great story where I'm not sure if it's true. Where he's in, is it the the greatest story ever told? Where he he kind of that's is that that's the Bible one, right? Uh, uh, yeah. And at, at the end, he appears at the kind of foot of Jesus' cross and says, um, "Oh, this is the Son of God." And then the director came over to him and said, "Oh, do you think you could do that with a bit more awe?" Because it's the son of God, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he, you know, the next take lines up, and uh, John Wayne goes, "Ah, oh, <laughs> it's the son of God." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's funny. Yeah, um, it reminds me. There's a good, um, there's a good joke in The Simpsons about that sort of thing, where uh, they have uh, Chief Wiggum arresting someone, and he goes, "I think he's arresting Ned Flanders for assuming that he's drunk, because obviously he babbles and everything." And mm. uh, he says. Now, where's your Messiah now? And that's them making fun of the the way that uh, in old Hollywood days they would cast big stars in biblical epics regardless of whether or not they sounded right for the period. Mm. And you kind of get the sense that people like Edward D. Robinson and John Wayne are people who should not be let anywhere near a uh, 
a kind of a biblical epic because they will just sound horribly out of place. Mm, especially not one. Didn't, uh, he played Genghis Khan as well, like at one mm. point, John Wayne. Like, oh man, that's fucked up. Yeah, that's bad. I don't know. Sorry, we've kind of gone off the <laughs> off the market. Um, so we best get back on uh, back on Mister Eastwood, um, uh, like we normally talk about. Uh, at this point, uh, this our artist's most successful film, um, and in Mr. Eastwood's case, uh, his most successful film is still in cinemas currently as we speak. Uh, it is the bona fide phenomenon that is American Sniper. Hold on, I got a woman and a kid 200 yards out moving towards the convoy. Her arms aren't swinging, she's carrying something. She's got a grenade. She's got an RKG Russian grenade. She's saying to the kid. You say a woman and a kid? You got eyes on this? Can you confirm? Negative. Your call. They fry you if you're wrong. Yeah, that's... um... That's something that's very, very surprising in so many ways because I think in the lead up to it, you know, people weren't really talking about American Sniper as a film that was going to be a dominant uh, force at the Oscars. They weren't talking about it as going to be a big hit because Eastwood had kind of had a, a bad run of hits. You know, he had a big hit a few years ago with Gran Torino and everything since then has not done terribly well. Um, so when it kind of opened in limited release and set a couple of records for you know, per theatre advertisers, it, it was seen very strange. And then when it opened and broke the record for film opening in January, it was even even stranger. Um, and I think uh, it's one of the most surprising success stories in, in recent years. Mm. It is currently, we were just speaking about this before we went on, um, it is going to overtake, it's a kind of inevitability that he, it will overtake uh, The Hunger Games, um, which... Uh, would make it the most successful American film, uh, the, the U.S. box office, most successful film in the U.S. box office that was released in 2014, which is fucking insane. Mm, yeah, overtaking uh, that and Guidance of the Galaxy, two films that were like released by, you know, they're, they're big budget films with uh, huge marketing budgets and huge special effects and all of these sort of things. And then PG thirteens as well. Yeah, so suddenly an R rated war film. Also that was the other thing that was made people maybe underestimate it is that the films about the Iraq war have not tended to do that well. I think people certainly in America maybe aren't willing to confront the realities of, of what the war has done to the people who fought in it, which is why things like um uh, sort of like redacted or in the Valley of LR but are these films that don't really do much business and it's only really in recent years that stuff like Lone Survivor has started to do sort of well but not like highest grossing film of the year well mm. and American Sniper let's not forget another record it has is the highest grossing war film of all time mm, which yeah. if we think about what that you know things like Saving Private Ryan which were big hits um, you know that is kind of nuts yeah, and it's it's really it is it's, it is kind of mind-boggling that a guy who's sort of eighty-four, he's going to be eighty-five in a couple of months, who has had this long storied career and has kind of been a 
just kind of a workhorse who's put out a film pretty much every year for the last couple of decades just to suddenly come around and, and also someone who was coming off uh, a, one of his sort of least successful uh, and least critically acclaimed films released just six months prior um, mm. in Jersey Boys you know for him to kind of come out with what a film that's just like this real lightning rod of and this cultural phenomenon is just is kind of crazy mm. crazier than the amount of the the amount of kind of money it's taken um is is kind of like we we're not we feel quite uncomfortable with american sniper sorry speaking for you at the moment Ed. i mean we we kind of both kind of to the same conclusion when we saw it um that it's that it's kind of so it sits on the fence so much that that people can kind of project anything onto it, and that's causing kind of a bit of controversy and a bit of kind of like a, a kind of a rum atmosphere around the whole thing. Yeah, I think for me, when I when I watched it and kind of when I came out of it, I thought that it was like very way very well made and like really uh, visceral and you know an exciting film. And there was lots of stuff I I liked in it. I liked Bradley Cooper's performance, and I thought that it it, it was very interesting. But I also kind of came away thinking that it seemed to be that Eastwood was kind of divided about the material. I think he wanted to pay tribute to Chris Kyle uh, and you know his his life and his death, and but he also wanted to make a film that was about that was kind of very strongly anti-war and about and, and that's something that you know if you look at his his body of work, I think he's he's someone who's quite a humanist. I think he's someone who. Uh, believes in the sanctity of life, which is, you know, obviously funny because he's taken a lot of it on screen. <laughs> um, but you know, he is whilst, of, whilst making quips about it at the, at the same time. Yeah, but you know, I think if you if you look over a lot of his works, particularly you know his two previous war films uh, of recent years, Flags from Our Fathers, and particularly Letters uh, from Iwo Jima, which are you know films that are kind of very deeply felt and have a great sympathy for what soldiers go through in war and you know the the pain of it all. I think that some of that is in uh, in American Sniper, but the kind of the theme of it is to an extent undermined or overwhelmed by the style, which is that it's so visceral and it's so uh, sleek and so well made that it's easy to watch it and think that it is endorsing the the violence, even as it's kind of in the the PTSD stuff and in showing scenes like uh, you know the Chris Carr's brother clearly shell shocked from his experiences in Iraq and having serious doubts about why they're there. Um, even as it has stuff like that in the background, it feels like the images are telling you a very different story. Mm. And it's, it's kind of reading about it, like, uh, obviously Chris Kyle was, was, was a kind of a very well-loved uh, um, kind of, uh, kind of character around veterans. And, um, you know, as part of the army, he was kind of, you know, regarded as a war hero. Um and you know Clint Eastwood and the writers were, you know, kind of told in no uncertain terms from by people who knew Chris Kyle and you know people who served with him that you know they are handling very delicate material here, and if they mm. get it wrong, then uh, you know they'll be kind of not hell to pay, but you know there'll be you know there'll be a lot of people who are very upset at kind of maybe tarnishing the reputation of a war hero, and in that sense, uh, Clint Eastwood kind of shows you know. Uh, perhaps more reverence to the central character than you'd hope for, given some of the things that Chris Kyle wrote in his autobiography, uh, which the, the the film is based on. Uh, some of which turned out to be kind of pretty awful things, uh, and some of them turned out to be kind of blatantly untrue. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, uh, but then they're kind of torn between that and telling an anti-war film that you kind of 
you get a very kind of confused picture, um, like you know the whole end of the film where you're kind of seeing uh, you know real images of the funeral procession um, and everything, and then like you know that is that's the mind made up for you that you can't think anything else other than this is a kind of a war hero, mm-hmm. not a kind of deeply complex character uh, doing you know what must be one of the most awful jobs in the world in a conflict that. Um, the director disagreed with the fact that we're in it. Yeah, and I think you also see in the the way that it has been that some people have said it's propaganda and it's pro-war and that it wants people to join the army, um, which I think is is due to like the the style of it and the, the 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 fact that it ends with that sort of footage does make it seem like it's uh, perhaps celebrating the broader conflict instead of you know commemorating a man who died. Mm-hmm. I think. That again, getting into the idea of what the theme of the film is, I think that a large part of it is in in the idea of PTSD and the the fact that Chris Carl kind of suffered from it. You know, it kind of takes the idea that the Iraq War brought things back to America that uh, you know have been harmful. The idea that uh, you know veterans who suffer from this are people who are who have you know kind of incredibly damaged uh, human beings either physically or emotionally. And that that you know the way they've been treated obviously is is kind of creates problems that are going to manifest further down the road and you know it can be in your my read of the film is the fact that you know that the, the the depiction of you know Kyle's last day before he was he was killed is kind of in, emblematic of that you know the fact that he goes off with a guy who was trying to help who also suffered from PTSD um, mm-hmm. you know and who was a veteran you know was then who then killed him and the idea that maybe that is one of the after effects, you know, more kind of physically uh, manifested by a character in the film. But then, you know, immediately after that, it's like the, the funeral footage and it, 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 the kind of complexity of that idea gets completely overshadowed and, and kind of overwhelmed. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it kind of strikes me as a film that could have been, like, incredibly interesting and quite scathing, but perhaps just found its way into the wrong hands. Because mm, originally um, Steven Spielberg was going to direct it. I don't think he'd have done any better. <laughs> it uh, would have been even have been more sentimental. It would have been more sentimental, but I think it probably would have been a lot less uh, ambiguous. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, I think it probably would have been. Yeah, you're right. It probably would have been a lot more kind of saccharine. Uh, certainly, the end probably would have been hammering it, kind of hammering it home. Um, Actually, the ending of it is kind of reminiscent of the ending of Schindler's List in that regard. You know, mm. putting in actual footage and to kind of really hammer home the emotion of it. Um, but I do think that that ambiguity is that's what makes the film interesting to discuss because you know there's the question of form versus content and everything. But I think that's also why, uh, let's say, the wrong people have kind of glommed onto the film. Yeah, um, like we we talked about this before we went on that like. Um, we're finding ourselves defending the film that we didn't like uh, to people who haven't seen it, who think perhaps it's anti kind of Islam and kind of, uh, uh, sorry, Islamophobic and uh, kind of like warmongering. Um, and that's a weird position to be in. Yeah, incredibly weird. Um, but yeah, I can see why people might see that because of the kind of the, the, the whole thing about how people who went to see it and then went straight on. Uh, Twitter and then said, you know, the film depicts Arabs as they really are and, you know, savages and things like that, which is obviously not true and is horrible and racist, but I think because the film has attracted that audience, uh, people are kind of imbuing it with a a 
kind of a hateful message that I don't think is borne out by the text, personally. No, no. Um, yeah, and it kind of goes quite... Yeah, and like given Clint Eastwood's kind of personality and, and his kind of previous work, he doesn't even flirt with it. Um, I mean, obviously there's kind of banter between the soldiers and stuff, uh, but that's kind of just like smacks of you know realism and is not out of place in any other film that's been made about the conflict Mm-hmm. Uh, any point so it's kind of yeah it, it's kind of just caught the imagination in a really kind of weird um, and in some cases sinister way yeah that's that is kind of the thing about it I think that sinisterness is why it's been such a hit in some ways because I think it has tapped into an audience that wouldn't have shown up for a film that was more stridently anti-war um uh, even if it was directed by kind of American icon Clint Eastwood, you know, because obviously uh, that hasn't helped a lot of his previous films. It didn't help Flags from Our, of Our Fathers uh, make a huge amount of money because that no. film wasn't a massive hit. Uh, and that was a film that was, you know, sort of very, uh, very, very nuanced and very kind of sensitive in its portrayal. And I think that this one is, is sensitive as well, but because it's so recent. Uh, Eastwood doesn't have the opportunity to kind of actually step back from it. Like the way that he was with his two World War Two movies, and he certainly, you know, it's not a situation where he could make another film from the perspective of the Iraqis, which I'm sure he would he would do, and he would do justice to their stories. But politically, uh, and you know, in in Hollywood, no one would fund that. No, uh, that, that's the thing that kind of yeah, that kind of dumb subplot with the kind of uh, Olympic Syrian sniper um, was just really fucking stupid. It seems to have been taken wholesale from Henry at the Gates. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but like didn't have the benefit of stupid accents. Yeah, <laughs> that that film had. Uh, so Bob Hoskins in that is is my favourite, I think, because uh, he kind of starts doing a Russian one, and he's just like, "I'll just be Bob Hoskins. It's fine. No one will notice." Like uh, uh, like Ray Winston in The Departed. Yeah. Starts off Boston, but whenever he has to shout, it's like Bell ba- uh, Bow Bells. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's kind of American Sniper. Um, a kind of yeah, I don't think he's going to have any other film that's going to get near it in terms of uh, box office thing because that really has run away with the crown, um, and is far and away his most successful. Um, now we're going to take an unprecedented step here, which is another thing to say given that we've only done one episode so far. Uh, we normally talk about uh, five films. Uh, um, uh, kind of the breakthrough, the most successful film, and then we do uh, what's considered uh, the artist dud. You know what have they done that's been you know bad, and then what, what have they done that's been kind of maybe uh, out of step with what they've done uh, in their career. We're actually combining those into two because the film that uh, we consider uh, to be Clint Eastwood's oddity is also probably his worst film. Which, considering he made two films with an orangutan. Um, is quite something. Uh, we're talking about Jersey Boys because it's fucking terrible. You know what I do now? I work for Joe Pesci. Little Joey Fisher. Same kid I used to smack around. A couple of months ago, we're driving through the old neighborhood. He says, hey, Tommy, how do you remember yourself back then? He says, I think I was a pretty stand-up guy. He says, I gotta be honest with you. You were a total prick. Nobody would have put up with your shit except we all needed something. Everybody remembers it the way they need to, right? It is, yeah, it is. I mean, I, I saw the um, stage play about six years ago on the West End, and it was really fun. I, I had like a really, really fun time. The music was great. The performances were funny. And it was just kind of this 
joyous, witty and kind of self-aware telling of this particular story of Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. Uh, yet in Eastwood's hands, it becomes like a dour, boring, uninteresting drama that's occasionally broken up by songs. Yeah. Um, which is weird. Um, it's it's kind of very peculiar because the one thing that kept... I mean, obviously, the film is bad. Okay, I mean, mm. that's 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 inescapable. It's kind of like... It's so broad in its, its depiction of Italian-Americans that it feels like uh, kind of a cross between a Dolmio advert and Bugsy Malone. <laughs> um, and it's so... But like, that's the kind of thing that works on stage. And it's a lot of this, the original stage cast, I think, I believe, the original kind of mm-hmm. uh, guys who were... Um, the guy who plays Frankie is very good. Um, he looks a lot like him, sounds a lot like him. You could say it's Uncanny Valley. You could, but I won't. No, right, okay, I've been working on that for a few minutes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's so broad and, and kind of the performance is so big. But like you say, the film is put together so kind of like procedurally and kind of boringly that uh, it kind of lacks any kind of fun or life. But the overriding uh, feeling of, of, uh, of, uh, of watching it is why the fuck is Clint Eastwood directing this movie? Yeah, it is kind of baffling. You know, he doesn't have, uh, you know, I think Clint Eastwood can be very funny in films. I think a lot of his films do have a kind of a wry sense of humour. You really see that showing up in a lot of his westerns, um, obviously because he's someone who's who's kind of renowned for his quips and things like that. I think he has a very kind of dry sense of humour that can work. Mm. Uh, But this is like a very broad story and he just takes all of the the humour and the fun out of it. Um, You know, it looks... It has his his visual style, which is kind of very grey and serious. Uh, the editing in it for someone who you know you know came up under Don Siegel, who was a guy who uh, was renowned for essentially being very frugal, shooting things very quickly, um, often under budget and under time, um, to the extent that you know Eastwood Eastwood has said that. Uh, Don Siegel would have been like an A-list director if he wasn't so efficient that he was that the studios felt it was more it was more worthwhile keeping him in B movies mm. because he was just a shorthand they could turn to and you know he could they could just get him to turn out films really quickly for them even though he was actually a, a really talented and really uh, visually very strong director. Mm. Um, yeah, the films like really lax. I watched it. and I thought you know did they release the work print because yeah. like the scenes there's no energy to them. And the jokes aren't, they don't play up the jokes at all. Like when the jokes happen, they just kind of fall really flat. Um, I said it was basically like an unfunny version of The Sopranos. Mm, which absolutely. Is kind of what it feels like. And also everyone's doing like a really bad Joe Pesci, Pesci a really bad Joe Pesci impression, except for the guy who's actually playing Joe Pesci in it. Mm, which I didn't realise because I, I thought I heard someone say, this is Joe Pesci. Um, but then just kind of forgot about it. Then at the end, one of the characters says, straight to camera, mind, um, mm. I work for Joe Pesci. And I was like, oh, it was Joe Pesci. But he didn't sound like he was doing Joe Pesci. I don't know, is that the best guy they could find? Or did they did they use up literally everyone who can do a Joe Pesci impression? And they a also... Joe, a Joe impression? That's not going to work. <laughs> I thought I could make that work, but it, I can't. It's a really hard, it's a really hard sentence to say, Joe Pesci yeah. impression. It's like uh, one of um, uh, Ron Burgundy's vocal warm-ups. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it's it's like, if you read anything about um, uh, Clint Eastwood's directorial style, it's said that he keeps a very kind of quiet set, he never shouts action, and they j- he just says go, and they just do it, and then if he, he wants it done in one take, and then he wants to move on, he wants to keep keep shooting, and just kind of 
just get everything done very economically, very straight to the point, kind of on the nose. But you get the impression that, like, it's not going to work for a film that kind of needs a certain amount of energy and a certain kind of, like, uh, you know, amount of kind of, like, fizz between uh, the performers who, granted, who have done it on Broadway kind of a billion times, um, but it's just so flat and just lifeless. And, I mean, there's a bit at the end, the end credits, so literally the very last thing that's in the film uh, is pretty much a lift straight from the stage musical. It's a big song and dance number, everyone's in, and it's fucking great. And I'm just mm. like, oh, man, they could have done that for 90 minutes, and that would have been all. I'd have watched that. Um, you know, sure, it wouldn't have been a great film. It would have been a filmed musical, but that was a lot more interesting than, you know, basically watching kind of turgid, like, cutscenes from Casino. Yeah, the uh, the ending feels the closest to the tone of the musical of any part of it. It has the sense of fun. It has the idea of them like walking around and and singing and then having conversations with people. And then you know there is just a sense of of joy and the sense of fun of performance to it. And the film occasionally has that in some of the some of the performances of them singing the the the, the songs for the first time. Like you know when he first sings, uh, "Can't take my eyes off of you." Mm-hmm. That's kind of a very strong moment that works really, really well. But a lot of the time, uh, the scenes just kind of sit there and unfold. And I think it's the problem of an actor's director, which is what Clint Eastwood is, going into a something that demands a stylist. Because mm-hmm. uh, obviously Clint Eastwood does have a very particular style, but like you say, it's very, uh, it's very unfussy. And mm-hmm. I can't think of any like genre that requires more fuss than a musical. Yeah, and it's 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 kind of baffling as to how he kind of got the job. But I have a theory. I, in fact, it's, it's a twofold theory. One is a deep kind of harbour, long harboured resentment from Eastwood himself that the film Paint Your Wagon was a giant financial and commercial failure. That's the musical <laughs> he was in with Lee Marvin and it's really bad. Um, but like, if you kind of adjust the figures for kind of inflation, that cost like nearly $150 million. It was a huge flop. It was a, you know, you know big, and that's probably one of the reasons... Uh, you know, why westerns weren't made as much after that point uh, because you know they made a musical with Lee Marvin. Whose idea was that? Like Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood as, as musical leads. That's a terrible idea. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was it. so that's his deep seated resentment. Also, he was attached for a long time to direct the remake of A Star Is Born with Beyonce uh, in it, and it just never happened. That's been kind of on and off for the last five years. So he was just like, "Oh fuck it, yeah, I'm gonna have to do a musical. I'll do this one." Picks kind of like what's currently, you know, a uh, um, uh, a musical off the stage that he can, the cast are available, let's do it. I'll get Crystal Walken and he owes me a favour. Yeah, he just plays Crystal Walken um, and that's it. That's all I can think of because no one would actually give him the job on the basis of the fact that he's Clint Eastwood. Yeah, I think that second one is, is the, the theory that I had, a working theory, that he had wanted to do a remake of A Star Is Born, it fell apart, So, he, but he clearly has a desire to make a musical because it's like the only genre he hasn't tackled that in sci-fi. Mm. Um, are pretty much the only things he hasn't done in what is, you know, has been a very, very varied career. And, you know, there is, <laughs> there is a sense that he just wanted to make a musical uh, and he didn't really... Uh, you don't get the sense that he really cared about it or that he really put much effort into the choice because usually he develops projects for, like, decades... Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, Unforgiven, uh, he, you know, started working on that in like the mid 80s and it didn't come to fruition until 1992. Mm. Uh, and this one, you know, really does feel like someone handed him the script. He looked at it and said, ah, all right. Yeah, we'll do it. And then they shot that script that had been handed to him, which was a first draft. 
Um, <laughs> and they were, they were like, yeah, let's move on. And the, I reckon all the actors were like, are you sure? Because we can do that one better. And he was just like, let's, 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 let's do it. It's fine. Um, and they, they shot it so quickly that he just kind of left it and then just went off to start working on American Sniper and then realised he hadn't edited it. And like, oh shit, well, the release date's coming up. <laughs> just but, put it out. Yeah. And it, it was it wasn't a uh, a popular film. Was no. it? it it didn't really go down very well. Um, but uh, you know, I can't really think of too many kind of bigger mismatches of kind of of like director and material. Really, just just what you know, he, he didn't obviously did not seem to give any 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 number of shits about the material. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the case of uh, you know he's someone who just likes to work, and you know he kind of felt that maybe it'd be kind of pushing himself outside of what he usually does. And, mm. you know, he's he's not probably not got that many years left in him. So, you know, I, I think maybe he just kind of looked at it and thought, you know, what haven't I done? Well, I've never made a musical. <laughs> mm. And then that was just the worst possible choice. Yeah. I just think, like, I think the upsetting thing is, is that it probably would have been, like, a half-decent, like, film in the hands of someone like Bill Condon. Mm. Uh, it would have been kind of, like, a fun watch. Yeah, and it completely isn't. They they kind of imbue it with a seriousness. Like I'm pretty. I obviously it's been a few years since I saw the stage play, but I'm fairly sure there wasn't anywhere near as many fucks and motherfuckers in it mm. as there are in the film version. Yeah, I, really I remember just... that because it's all it's all a bit kind of like capery at the start. They're trying to steal mm. a safe out of it, and they put it in a car, and the car kind of tips up, and then it's like, do you know what I mean? It's uh, you know, it's, the language is pretty salty. It's, it is like a, an episode of, of Sopranos. Yeah, it's just, it's so weird. That is a musical that, you know, has a very family-friendly kind of uh, appeal to it. You know, it's very big, very broad jukebox musical based on all these kind of very sunny pop songs. And even though the story is, you know, not... The, the actual story of Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons is not really contained in that musical. Like, the musical is it sands everything down. That's the appeal of it. And I think when you try and take that story and make it like salty but also still musical and still have people address the camera then it's just it just doesn't really kind of gel together they they should have either done a, a straight ahead serious drama about it about the the four seasons in the vein of i don't know uh, something like walk the line where the musical numbers are, are integrated into part of it but mainly it's a drama mm-hmm. but instead they kind of have this weird mishmash between kind of very dour and downbeat and drab drama and you know these kind of sh- uh, sunny kind of very flatly staged musical numbers mm. yeah maybe you should have done um our house the madness musical as an adaptation <laughs> because there's no ambiguity that's supposed to be you know uh, a laugh out loud uh kind of 90 minutes of comedy well i'm hoping he you know signs up for the wicked uh, film now that that's in development. Well, that's been in development for forever, hasn't it? Is that, yeah. is, is that what like is Adina Menzel still available? Uh, well, Her stock's I'm, never I'm, been higher, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think she probably is available just because she doesn't need to do anything with all of the let it go money. Mm. So if they can get her, if she uh, wants to do it, I'm sure there's no problem with her finding space in a schedule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that. But yeah, I'm just baffled by. By Jersey Boys in kind of many ways, um, but yeah, if for those completists out there, you kind of really should see it. Because, like I say, I mean, he's been in some bad films. I mean, he, as an actor, he's been in some bad films. Um, things like Firefox and The Rookie uh, with Charlie Sheen is is really, you know pretty bad. Some of the Dirty Harry sequels are a ropey. 
um, as a director. I mean, Space Cowboys. I don't remember being very good. Uh, <laughs> he, he made uh, a couple, you know, some really kind of average films like Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and True Crime and Bloodwork. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing quite touches Jersey Boys for shitness. Also, it's it's a great double bill with that and Jay Edgar for terrible, terrible old man makeup. Oh yes, yes, there is some a truly appalling, and then, you know Jay Edgar is is bad for that. Um, um, I mean, the thing is, Jay Edgar's bad, but at least mm. I can understand why he made it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Jersey Boys, no, no, nothing at all. Um, so, okay, that's the oddity and the dud out of the way. Um, so let's kind of get onto the crowning achievement. We mentioned it a few times. Um, and you know, you, there really is only uh, uh, one kind of film that that we were ever going to pick, uh, and that's Unforgiven. Now that is you there, and the mom on the cover, the Duke of Death, oh, the Duke, du- du- Duke of Death. Duke, oh, yeah. you always wear a Helen Jesus with a pistol, Bob. But seven of them, boy, and you protect that woman and all that. How, how the hell do you do that? Uh, let me see. Uh, it's generally considered desirable in the publishing business to take a certain liberty when you're depicting the uh, the cover scene. It is for reasons involving the marketplace, etc. Well, Mr. Beauchamp, from what I read this here book, the writing's not that much different than the picture. Well, I can assure you, Mr. Daggett, that the events that are described in there are taken from the account of eyewitnesses here. Eyewitnesses. Yes, sir. You mean like the duck himself, I guess. <laughs> they, the Duke. Duck, I says. Unforgiven is, you know, there's. It's a great film, just in its own right, in terms of that it's a really compelling story, and it's, you know, got great acting. It looks gorgeous, particularly, you know, some of the. Uh, I think the opening shot and the closing shot, which are just a silhouette of, uh, of the homestead. Uh, mm-hmm. of Clint Eastwood's character is just like some of them it's probably the two most gorgeous images he filmed as a director but it's also just wonderful as a uh, as you know a def- kind of a definitive statement about the western as a genre and as it relates to him and his persona yeah it kind of uh, kind of turns it inside out um, kind of pulls apart the kind of the myth of the west um, and it is actually a classical western um into in the you know and then the mold of of high noon and, and the searches and and stagecoach and things like that, but it is kind of very much told with a modern sensibility, which is why it's so powerful. Um, yeah, it kind of pulls apart his i you know that iconic um, image we have of him as a Western star, and um, yeah, really is 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 quite a uh, un- unconventional take uh, on. You know, you know what a star should be doing, kind of moving towards the end of their life. You basically kind of uh, uh, his character William Money is is kind of an old, kind of beaten up, um, uh, kind of gunslinger, but he, you know, he's an awful kind of criminal, not like a kind of uh, someone who is on the side of good, uh, and kind of in that kind of hoary cliche of coming out of retirement to do one last job. Um, does that but it's just it just gets just it's just awful it's just the worst ever idea it's not like you know he kind of grows as a person afterwards it's just a you know terrible dirty ugly violent uh kind of affair which is just horrible which is kind of what the old west was yeah it's it's a great story about a guy who has kind of found some peace and some sort of grace 
completely abandoning it and falling into his old horrible habits. Um, I think it's interesting again in terms of the image of him that as a as an uh, an icon of the West because it starts with him at probably his lowest because mm-hmm. he's a pig farmer, he's poor, his wife's died, he's raising two kids on his own. And at the start of the film, they show him falling over. You know, he's just an old guy who's really unfit for anything, falling over in the mud with his pigs. Mm. And then, uh, you know, a, a young guy comes up to him and says, you know, there's this uh, bounty out on these two guys who cut up a prostitute in this small town. You know, do you want to go on it? And he, you know, he kind of makes some things about saying, oh, no, I can't do it. And then, but the, uh, the you know, his, his protests become, sound very hollow and you get the sense that, it wouldn't take much to push him out there to go and, uh, you know, to go and kill people again. And the whole mm. film is about how easily he slides into that. Yeah, and that kind of kills everybody. Yes, um, yes. Uh, but in, in in what is a, a very kind of anti-violence, anti-killing uh, kind of comment on the kind of frivolity of 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 the just the sheer magnitude of murder in old westerns where. Like you could just wander into any old town, a no-name town, and kill everyone in it, and you know, uh, kind of ignore the law enforcement. It's fine uh, as long as you're wearing a white hat; it'll be okay. Uh, whereas in in this, you know, every kind of violent act has consequence, and um, you know, there's one of my all-time favourite kind of dialogue exchanges after the kid who uh, is kind of like a Billy the Kid-style character who kind of claims to have killed kind of five or six people, but actually turns out he hasn't killed anyone. But after he does kill someone, uh, you know, he turns to Clint Eastwood and said, oh, you know, he deserved it, he had it coming. And Clint Eastwood says, we've all got it coming. Uh, and, you know, it's just this kind of, like, chilling uh, kind of kind of like sense of kind of violent death that hangs over the entire film. Um, mm. And it's very difficult to cheer for anyone in this film. Yeah, the uh, and the deaths in it are very, they're, they're unclean. Mm. They're not kind of like, guy gets shot just kind of clutches his stomach and goes oh and then just like he's dead yeah it's like the when they kill one of the guys um who's you know cut up this uh this young prostitute's face uh they gut shot him from a long way away and then he crawls very slowly into cover and he's just cry he's just screaming in agony and he's there's blood everywhere and it gets to be so much that money just uh, asks, says that he won't shoot if uh, the guys want to, his kind of compatriots want to run over and give him some water in his final moments. Mm. And it's really mm. horrible. It's a horrible way to die. Mm. Yeah, um, that, that, that whole sequence is, is like everything that the old Westerns weren't. Like he's got his, his, uh, his kind of partner, Morgan Freeman, uh, plays his partner in the film. Um, and he hasn't got, he is the, the best shot with a rifle, isn't he? And he's mm. supposed to be the one who takes the guy out. But he hasn't got the heart for it anymore, so he gives the gun to the kid. And the kid can't see more than, like, 50 yards ahead of him. So he, he gives the gun to Clint, and Clint kind of sh- just shoots him in the gut because he's not a very good shot with a rifle. And, yeah, like you say, they're just kind of watching him die in agony and then, you know, says, I won't shoot if you want to give him some water. And that's just like, think about how all those gunfights in kind of canyons uh, kind of played out in classical westerns. <laughs> no, it's not like that. And also the the staging of that scene is a very classical Western image of, you know, they've got the high grounds, they're hiding amongst the rocks and the guys are shooting up amongst at them. But instead of it being, you know, most of Westerns where it's kind of this very tense thing where they're ducking and diving, they, you know, are like, yeah, these guys aren't going to be able to hiss us <laughs> because yeah. we're really far away and they've got handguns. So there's deliberately no uh, no tension to the scene in the sense that 
there's no sense of, oh, it's a life-or-death thing. They know they have the advantage, and it's just about whether or not they can get the guy that they're after. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a film kind of chock full of kind of powerhouse performances. I mean, notably Eastwood himself, who, uh, you know, very nearly kind of joined an elite band of people who kind of directed themselves to an Oscar. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Gene Hackman is, is kind of like uh, pretty amazing in that. Richard Harris isn't in the film for very long. He kind of just disappears halfway through the film, almost to the point where you could probably say wasn't actually that necessary he was in it, but he mm. was kind of a lot of fun while he was in it. Um, and yeah, Morgan Freeman's always good. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a kind of, it's, it's kind of a, a star kind of masterpiece territory for me. Yeah. I think the, the thing with the Richard Harris thing is I think, yeah, you're right. His character isn't, you know, essential to the film in terms of a story thing, but I think he's essential to the theme overall, but also the kind of what for me makes the film so great, which is he plays a character called English Bob, mm-hmm. um, who's, you know, this legendary is supposedly legendary gunslinger who's got this guy following him around uh writing a book about him called the the duck of death um or the duke of death as it's actually called but everyone calls it the duck of death <laughs> um and he is he's got this guy following him around writing his uh biography is this great hagiography and he comes to the town that gene hackman is the uh is the the sheriff of following after this bounty because it's a chance for him to embellish his re- his legend a bit more and uh, he gets arrested almost instantly because Gene Hackman doesn't allow any guns in the place and he uh, beats the shit out of Richard Harrison and throws him in jail and then he and his uh, biographer are in jail together and Hackman just spends the entirety of a night completely tearing apart the legend that English Bob has built for himself saying that you know in this particular gunfight where he, you know, shot a guy who was uh, apparently disrespectful for a woman, you know, he's painted it as this kind of very roguish, grand Robin Hoody kind of thing, uh, and he just says that he was drunk, he, the guy fired at him first, but his gun misfired, so uh, English Bob just, like, shot him when he was essentially unarmed, <laughs> and just kept shooting him until he was dead, and for me, you know, that that gets to the heart of the idea of the film, you know, pif- uh, puncturing the mythology of the West and saying that these guys weren't these kind of roguish heroes. They're often, you know, drunks and scumbags. And, mm. you know, it's only because they're, they're alive to tell their story that they're portrayed as anything other than that. But so the film operates on that level as a deconstruction of the Western myth of the myth, but also, you know, the performances bring such specificity to it that they never feel like it's just archetypes. They feel like real people. Um, you know, English Bob, Bob has this kind of, real pomposity to him that that really kind of plays that up but also little details like the fact that gene hackman's character is building himself a house mm-hmm. uh so he's like a sheriff who's building what he hopes will be you know a homestead for civilization when it reaches the town and he's he's a complete sociopath and a sadist who believes that he's doing the right thing and so he he feels like a real person but he's also like uh you know he's he's he he thinks he's building something great on all the kind of bloody spilling and everyone in the film kind of has that sense of it they all feel like real people um once you get past the initial kind of archetype archetypes mm, absolutely and yeah that's why we picked it because it is a, a film that is quite bold for someone to make towards the end of their career uh when they could have just made a straight western and had a last hurrah um yeah he chose to do something quite interesting and kind of uh, pull the myth of the West apart, and also his own myth apart, which is which is really fascinating. Um, but yeah, Clint Eastwood has, has made a lot of great films. 
um, kind of ones we haven't really mentioned in in this podcast anywhere. We can just kind of throw in at the end there. Um, Outlaw Josie Wales, which is another western of his. That's a that's a really really astonishing film. Me and Ed moan a lot about how much we hate uh, biopics, but I'd recommend checking out Clint Eastwood's uh, film uh, Bird. Uh, he made about Charlie Parker because that's one of his other big loves is jazz music. Um, that's a really really good uh, example of the biopic done right. Um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which you mentioned on the alternate one hundred, he made a lot of great films, Ed. Yeah, and you know his first one as a director, Play Misty for me, is a great uh, thriller with some admittedly kind of dodgy gender politics from the time that it was made, but it's still a really great kind of um, almost Hitchcockian uh, riff on the idea of a wrong, wronged woman or you know an obsessive woman, which is really really good, and he's really good in it mm-hmm. um, as the first kind of example of him you know, pushing himself, understanding his limits of a director and really kind of, as as, a, as an actor and really directing himself to those, uh, to what his strengths are. Um, I think that his uh, two films from 2008, Gran Torino and Changeling, are both very, very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, Changeling in particular is really interesting if you look at that, you know, him working with Angelina Jolie there and then if you look at her two directorial films in The Land of Blood and Honey and Unbroken, definitely seem to have the stamp of Eastwood's kind of influence on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're both very, very good. Uh, you know, Million Dollar Baby is, and uh, Mystic River are both quite melodramatic, but they're both very, very watchable and very you have some really, really great uh, performances in them. Uh, yeah, I think you know there's and even stuff like the uh, you know in the Line of Fire, which is uh, he didn't direct that's directed by Wolfgang Peterson and was for many years the last film he acted in without directing mm, until he quite- came back for. Trouble with the Curve, which isn't a very good film, but yeah, like twenty twenty five years between those two films, isn't it? it nearly, yeah, it's like uh, nineteen years, I think. Right. So, so he he uh, didn't work for other directors for a very long time, and Trouble with the Curve basically he directed because it's directed by like his production assistant or something. So, um, right. yeah. So uh, or um, yeah, In the Line of Fire is great, wonderful uh, performance by John Malkovich in that, and he and Eastwood play off of each other well. Uh, at very different ends of the the uh, hamometer, mm. um, yeah, yeah. I think he's he's someone who, as an actor, you know, is a wonderful, dependable um, figure. But as a as a director, he is uh, he's just so kind of varied and interesting that even, well, with the exception of Jersey Boys, even the bad films have something interesting in them. Mm, yeah, and we shouldn't uh, kind of forget before we finish this podcast that he um, uh, did guest star um, in the film Casper. Yes. Uh, Voice only, which is which is a weird one. So that's that's Clint Eastwood. Um, uh, we've got a couple of other episodes before we do our next artist profile. But who is the next artist's head on the block, Ed? Uh, our next one, uh, because we don't want to do just about white men. It's going to be Susan Sarandon. Wow. Yes, someone we greatly admire. Um, who we kind of had a few of her films in the alternate one hundred. Um, and someone who we've had a lot of fun looking at filmography already because there is a lot to get our teeth into and a lot of kind of weird, interesting stuff. Um, plus, yeah, a lot of um, uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of curveball choices in there. Um, so, yeah, that's our next one. Um, so until uh, next week, uh, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.